All right, welcome to day 85 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through chapter 22, verse 21, as well as Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through verse 36. So, um, okay, Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. Um, so um, here we have the people, uh, you recall from yesterday, of Israel, uh, refused entry or passage through Edom. And so what they're going to do now is that they're, they're going to go around Edom. So essentially they're going to go to the east of Edom, which is um, basically border of the Arabian desert pretty much. And, um, and they're going to go north that way. It's a much less desirable route to take. But since Edom is refusing them passage, that's how it's going to be. That's how they're going to have to make their way north. And the people become impatient again. And um, they start speaking against Moses, um, uh, kind of standard type stuff that we've heard. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and there's no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Um, interesting way to put it, right? There's no food. We loathe this worthless food. The real issue is that they're sick and tired of eating this food. Um, not there, that there is none, just, uh, which is, you know, maybe, maybe, a, 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 we can, we could take a little bit from our, the way in which we can sometimes grumble about, uh, grumble uh, to God, where he's just simply meeting our needs, but because, um, and, and every day is sufficient, but, uh, but we'd rather have more, we'd rather have something else. Um, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing that's going on here. And um, in response, God once again judges, sends his judgment against the people. And we've seen this several times now. Um, and this, in this time, it's going to be by sending what are called here fiery serpents among them. And uh, these, these things bite the people and apparently have a lethal bite. And when they see that this is what's happening, they go to Moses and confess, we have sinned for we've spoken against Yahweh and you. Pray to Yahweh that he may take the serpent from serpents from us, uh, which God uh, apparently does not. What he does instead is he, he commands Moses to make a serpent, which as we see is going to be a, a, a thing made out of bronze that's, uh, that's, that's raised up on a pole. And the serpents, which are, are not taken from them, if they bite anyone, they are to go to the bronze serpent and look at it and live. Um, and there's, you know, a question mark as to why it's done this way, right? Like, why is, why is it not that God just says, okay, you're done with this, you've, you know, uh, Moses has interceded for you and the serpents are taken away, but no— here they are not taken away. They remain among the people. Maybe they're maybe they're fewer in number, but the idea is that if you are bitten by one of these things, you have to exercise that that alone directs you to the answer, which is the object of your grumbling, of your complaining in the first place. That is Moses and Moses's authority over them. That. God says, here is the way you're to deal with this plague. And if you want to deal with it, you need to believe the one whom I have appointed over you. You need, you need to look at this thing. And, and it's just the gaze at this serpent, this bronze serpent, 
that apparently heals them from this. And so there's this continual need to be reminded of, of, um, of, of Moses's authority, of Moses's being appointed by God and his special uh, connection to God in the wilderness, uh, which is actually very similar in theme. And like once we see it this way, uh, to, um, to what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if you're familiar with that, one of the ways in which Jesus describes, um, I guess you could say a positive response to him, right? Like uh, receiving him, believing in his name, that kind of thing is whoever, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. So in other words, like here is this thing that is erected as this mark of salvation for you. And if you want salvation, you need to go to it. You need to go to it because this is God's appointed way to save you from the consequence of your sins. And uh, so Jesus uses that as this as kind of like an illustration of the significance of his cross, that as the serpent is lifted up as a sim, as, as where you must go for salvation, so I will be lifted up for where you must go for salvation. It's interesting. And we'll see it. We'll see it when we get to John chapter three. Okay. So as I said, um, they're traveling up north and they make it to the territory of Moab. Um, this is, this is, this is one of the sections in the Bibles where it's like helpful to go to the maps that you might have. Uh, most decent Bibles will have a map in the back of theirs. Um, I know I have them in mind and I'm just flipping there right now. Um, just to kind of get a layout of what is there in the trans Jordan. So the, so if you, um, <clears throat> if you're looking at the land of Israel, Okay. The land of Israel on its west has the Mediterranean Sea. And then there's a strip of land roughly the size of New Jersey, which is quote unquote Israel, might call it Canaan. Sometimes it's called the Levant. Sometimes it's called Palestine. But in general, it's the same geographical area. So it's flanked, as I said, on the west by the Mediterranean Sea. And then running down the center of it is is the Jordan River, which at times is a little bitty stream. At other times, it's a little bit better, but it's never like this like major river. Um, and on the top, you have a small lake called the lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee, which we would call the Sea of Galilee. And um, on the south of the Jordan River, you've got the Dead Sea, which is much larger than the Sea of Galilee. Um, this, of course, being you know, the famous Dead Sea that you can visit today and you can go float in it because of its salt content and everything. But uh, here in the Transjordan, which is which is the area east of the Jordan, between the Jordan River and the Arabian Desert, uh, there are various people groups living, uh, each of which has its western border on the, the, the Jordan River. Um, and so at the very, well, uh, not, not so much the case for Edom because Edom... Edom, actually, its northernmost part is kind of the southern tip of the Dead Sea. So Edom is the first territory you encounter when you try to travel uh, from the south going north in the Transjordan. They're in the very south, okay? And then you have Moab, okay? And Moab is basically basically all the territory... If uh, uh, it depends like, okay, it's, it's mainly like if you were to cut the Dead Sea in half, it's the, uh, it's the area that's, 
that's that's complete that's due east of there um for about 25 about 25 30 miles wide um and that's moab and then at the northern half of the dead sea um all the way up to like usually uh it, it, it would i mean it kind of depends on 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 the the period in history that we're talking about but generally like significantly further north of the the Sea of Galilee, that's going to be the territory of Ammon, the Ammonites. Okay. So if you're working your way from south to north, you've got the Edomites, the Moabites, and then the Ammonites. And these are the people groups whom Israel is going to encounter. So they, so they, so they're on the east of Moab. Okay. Moab, again, directly east of the Dead Sea, the bottom, uh, the south, uh, the, the south southern half of the Dead Sea. And, um, and as they're going through there, uh, we start to see, um, we see an, an interesting thing mentioned in verse 14, uh, basically this, uh, reference to another, I don't want to say that this is like scripture or anything, but another book that was apparently known to the ancient Israelite called the book, or perhaps the scroll of the wars of Yahweh. So this may actually be a reference to something that um, that could have been used as perhaps a source, a historical source in the writing of some of these narratives. We're not quite sure the function that it um, that it played, but uh, but here you have uh, a verse, some verses about what the geography of Moab looks like. And so, you know, Vahev in Sufa and the valleys of the Arnon and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seat of Ar and leans to the border of Moab, right? And you're like, okay, well, I don't know. <laughs> that seems like a very interesting passage to me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it's just noted here that, that um, the, the territory Israel was in is the territory that's referred to in this passage from the book of the Wars of Yahweh. Again, this is not a book that we're in possession of. We only read about it here, but it is intriguing. Um, just like, uh, as I noted in Genesis, I think it's chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. So there's these hints that there are other written materials that contain information similar to what we find in the Bible, or at least with overlapping uh, interests. And there's a few other places mentioned here um, that, that are just part of what's called the wilderness itinerary, this itinerary of journeys of stops that the, the, the of stops that the people of Israel make on their journey uh, towards the promised land. Then they get to the territory of the Amorites. So Moab is kind of um, pushed to the side. Moab will be the, uh, the a main player in the next few chapters. But um, uh, when they reach the territory of, uh, of the Amorites, they essentially say a very similar thing to the king that they first encounter. Now, the Amorites have various kings depending on the city-states that they're, uh, they're coming up against. But this one is called Sihon, uh, the Amorite. And uh, basically, Moses gives them the same offer as Edom. Let us pass through. We'll just take the highways. We're not going to eat of the vineyards. We're not going to go through your fields. And his response is even worse, right? He doesn't even respond with words. There is no second try. He just comes out with an army and fights against Israel. Again, keep in mind, these people are not walking into people who are welcoming them welcoming them with open arms. They're walking into hostile territory, people who would just as well see Israel eradicated as, um, as live anywhere near them. And so they fight. 
um, and the Lord gives Israel victory over Ammon, and um, they take possession of the territory of Ammon. So this is the first territorial possession that they actually do take. Uh, and, and noteworthy here is the Ammonite, or I should say Sihon's capital of Heshbon. Um, so the Israelites are living in that area at that time. And then they have to face another king who lives in that area, and that is Og, the king of Bashan. And again, just the same as we saw with Sihon, he comes out to battle, and Israel defeats him. Uh, they then find themselves in the plains of Moab, and they will be here for a while. This is where the people are when Deuteronomy is given. Um, not there yet, of course, but yeah, they're 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 in Moab, and the main the one the guy who's identified as as the king of Moab is a guy named Balak, the son of Zippor, and he kind of starts freaking out because of Israel's large numbers and great dread falls upon him. This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So there might be a military concern here, um, uh, although Israel's battles so far have seemed to be in response to aggression. Um, <clears throat> there might be some exceptions to that if we think of uh, like what is said um, in the passage of today, uh, like with Yezer um, and some of the other um, villages around there, <clears throat> although there's not a lot of details given as to what actually caused those 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 battles. Um, but but he's concerned enough and he says uh, and, and Moab sends to the elders of Midian. Midian being a people group that dwells in the eastern Sinai region um, and, and, and informs them of his concerns about Israel. And so they decide to say, what he decides to do is to send messengers to a man named Balaam, the son of Beor, who lives at Pethor. Okay. And uh, this is uh, apparently um, Balaam lives significantly far north um, probably up into what is a uh, present day Syria. And, um, and he, he, he tries to elicit Balaam's help. Uh, and he says, behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. They are dwelling opposite me. Come now curse this people for me since they are too mighty for me. So they're, they're so big, but if I'm going to have any chance at defeating them, I need some kind of divine curse on them. Uh, perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So Balaam is seen as kind of a, an individual with a very, uh, with, with an, an in with some deities. I don't know if it's right to call him a man of prayer, right? But his reputation is that when that uh, for being um, a seer, a, an individual who can communicate with the divine realm. And so they send the elders, and Moab and Midian send their elders with, it says, the fees for divination. Okay, so this is another hint as to what Balaam does, what he's all about. And divination, of course, as I've mentioned before, as opposed to prophecy, divination reads... Um, objects, things in this world, circumstances as signs for what's going to come, uh, whether or not, like communication from the divine realm. 
And um, so you're trying to elicit some kind of um, special knowledge, um, sometimes through a deity, sometimes through means that to us would appear to be magical. Um, but they're, they, 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 they go and they're ready to pay Balaam to do his thing. And Balaam initially says to them, you know, lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as Yahweh speaks to me. So that's, you know, uh, okay, you want to, you want a word about is about this people. Let me see what their God has to say. Um, now it's a, it's a, one thing that's a little bit puzzling about the, or at least the early parts of the Balaam narrative is what is his relation, his, his relationship to Yahweh supposed to be? Because here he just seems to take it for granted that he will hear from the God of the Israelites. And if you look down to verse 18, he actually calls Yahweh his God. He says, um, I could not go beyond the command of Yahweh my God. So it's a little bit up in the air as to like what exactly, uh, how we're to understand this. Is Balaam kind of like a Melchizedek type um, figure where he is not a descendant of Abraham, but he knows something of the one true God and maybe doesn't see him as the one true God, but knows something of Yahweh. Um, or is it just that he has the understanding, you know, perhaps information has been given to him that the deity that has led these people out of Egypt, his name is Yahweh, his 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 fame is is spreading throughout the earth. We've seen that that's another thing that is going on at this uh, period, time period. So there's some question marks there, but it is interesting how Balaam speaks about the Lord here. Um, and so the the princes stay with him, and and when God actually God then actually comes to Balaam in uh, allegedly in some kind of vision or something. And Balaam tells them what's up. He's like, they want me to curse this people that's come out of Egypt uh, so that they can fight against them and drive them out. And God says, by no means are you going to do that. You are not going to curse the people because these people are blessed. And so Balaam, um, following what the Lord says here, rises in the morning and tells them, I can't do it. Yahweh will not allow me to go and do this. And so the princes of Moab rise and go back to Balaam and or Balak, and they tell him that Balaam is unwilling to go. So then Balak sends more, uh, a second um, uh, group of envoys uh, to talk to him, to try to persuade him. Uh, this time, he sends more of them and more honorable. Verse 35 of this chapter calls them princes whom he sends. So people of higher social rank uh, than, than elders and um, more of them. And, um, and, and they get there and, uh, Balaam tells him, look, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of Yahweh, my God to do less or to do more. So he just here, he seems like this obedient, um, follower of Yahweh, somebody who wants to, wants to yield to the will of the Lord, um, and is not going to go unless he is permitted to go. He's not a charlatan. He's not a pretender. He's he will only go if he truly believes that the Lord is uh, is with him in this. Um, but he does say, okay, I'll go to bed right now, and if the Lord speaks to me tonight, then maybe things will be different. And indeed, God did come to him, and he says, if these men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but do only what I tell you. Right. 
So this thing that you've been saying the whole time that you only do what I tell you, do that, okay? Um, so Balaam rises in the morning, saddles his donkey, and goes with the princes of Moab. And uh, we'll pick up there tomorrow. Okay, let's go over to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. This is Luke's account of the calling of the disciples, which is interesting, right? Because you kind of, as I said, Luke, it seems likely has rearranged some of this material. So I don't know if he's the best gospel to be looking at for like a chronological account of Jesus's life. Um, But it's interesting that he places this after all these things where kind of we picture Jesus going around with the 12. And indeed, there were a lot of people following him. But I think the idea here is that the de- is that the all the guys whom he's naming, of course, are already following him at this point. Okay, it's just that he specifically sets them apart as as a, an inner twelve, a special twelve, um, no doubt corresponding to the tribes of Israel. Um, this is a, a theme that the Bible is not shy about. That um, the that the church is just as Israel is represented, the people of God in the Old Testament are represented by a group of 12. Here in the New Testament, the New Testament people are represented by the pe- uh, a group of 12. And Jesus um, does this. He chooses them after an entire night of prayer to God. And he chooses the 12. And um, uh, beginning with Simon, of course, the most prominent. And uh, you note, note here that you have a hodgepodge of names. Some of them are more common than the others. Uh, but the ones that are very common names, like Simon, for example, is the most common name in first century Palestine. It always tells you which Simon he is, right? Whom he named Jesus. There's another Simon with them who was called a zealot. Um, Judas, likewise, another very popular name. You've got Judas, the son of James. You've got Judas Iscariot, who will become a traitor. But then you've got, um, then you've got like Philip, Bartholomew. These are common, common names. Um, and, uh, of course, James and John, so it's clear who they are. They're, they're brothers, so there's no need to further uh, identify them. Uh, but, J- but the other James has to be identified, distinguished as the son of Alphaeus. All this just to say that the way in which the, the gospel writers often use personal names is very much in line with what you would actually call them if they were there. Jesus being an exceedingly popular name is Jesus of Nazareth when the people want to talk about him. And it might not be clear yet in the discourse that which Jesus they're talking about. Um, you also see here that, um, and Luke is the only one who does this, it says that Jesus called his disciples and chose them from the twelve, and he named them apostles, whom he named apostles. So um, whether or not Jesus started using this title this early on, or if Luke is saying that these are the ones who eventually would be called apostles, um, it, he specifically uh, identifies the 12 disciples as those who would later be the ones specially chosen to carry the gospel uh, throughout the earth, um, to, uh, to, to basically head up the church. Um, then Jesus comes, and he stands on a level place, and a great crowd comes around him, and Luke emphasizes how far and wide the people are coming from. They're coming from Judea, which, as we've seen, Luke probably is its his way of just referring to the land in general. Uh, but then, indeed, from the south, from Jerusalem, as well as from the north, the coastlands, Tyre and Sidon, they all come to, to hear him. They There is healing going on. There are unclean spirits being cast out. Um, and there's 
there's just Jesus is being doing his Jesus stuff, right? The crowd seeks to touch him because power is coming out from him and healing them all. So it's just this amazing encounter with Jesus. And uh, Jesus then open, lifts up his eyes on his disciples. And uh, it could be he's restricting himself to the 12, but much more likely it's to the greater number of his disciples who are there. And then we get Luke's uh, version of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is, uh, you compare this with Matthew, you could see, you know, there's certain things that Luke leaves out that Matthew includes and vice versa. Uh, there are different ways of arranging the sayings. And again, I think <clears throat> there's various ways to explain why that is. But uh, as as I noted already again today, Luke seems to be the one who uh, is is rearranging material here and kind of being being selective as to what he includes, which is very similar to what he told us he's going to do in his uh, in his introduction. Um, now, there's a couple um, noteworthy things about the way in which Luke gives the Beatitudes here. So I. Notice uh, that I've I've been saying in the last uh, since we've been in Luke that Luke has a special concern for the poor, okay, like the materially poor, uh, the people who like are lowly in this life, and so the wording is a little different than it is in Matthew. So in Matthew, it's blessed are are the poor in spirit, okay. Here it's just blessed are are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, okay. Um, Blessed are you who are hungry now. You're just it's just those who are hungry, whereas in Matthew, it's those who what? Who are hungry for righteousness. Um hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Um so blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Uh, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So that's a great passage for just whenever you know you take flack for, for following Christ. Uh, this, is, this is a wonderful thing to remember. Um, and then he complements this with an equal number of woes that correspond to these things, right? So whereas it was blessed are you who are poor, here it's woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And as much as we try to, um, you know, justify being rich and everything, uh, I, I do think that uh, that does passages like this do challenge us that in the affluent modern West, many of us are, most of us are exceedingly rich compared to most people who have ever lived or are living today on the face of this planet. And, um, and I think the new Testament does target many of us would target many of us as the quote unquote rich. And it's not impossible to enter into the kingdom of heaven if you have great wealth, uh, but it is with difficulty, although with God, all things are possible. Um, so that corresponds to the poor, corresponding to the hungry. Woe to you who are full, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep, corresponding to those who weep. Okay, so those who are poor now, hungry now, weep now, will in the time to come be blessed, whereas those who are rich, full, and laugh will uh, will come under times of sorrow. Uh, notice how future-oriented this is. 
this already here, we see that in the kingdom of God, it is not just established and it's just that way forever. No, there's, there's, there's going to be a point in the future in which the tables turn. Uh, of course, we see, we understand this as the full realization of the kingdom of God in Jesus. Um, and then uh, this passage ends with two paragraphs that are very much focused on loving one's enemies. Um, loving your enemies, doing good to those who hate you, blessing those who curse you, praying for those who abuse you. Think of those verbs, loving, doing good, blessing, praying. Is that how you are towards those who are your enemies, those who don't like you, those maybe who have done uh, exceedingly mean things to you? Um, there's this, this generosity that we read also about in, in Matthew. Uh, anyone who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one as well. Um, the one who wants to take your cloak from you, uh, don't withhold your tunic from them. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Um, and then Jesus explains this, right? That if you love those who love you, you're just like everybody else. It's easy to love people who love you. You want to know what's hard is is loving those who 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 do harm to you, loving those who who have done have wronged you. Um, even sinners are are able to love those whom they get along with, whom it's easy to love. The one who is truly a sin, king, citizen of the kingdom of heaven can love even the most difficult to love people. Um, so, yeah. Um, and the idea here is that doing this makes you like God, okay? Uh, in, in so doing, not in the bad, not in like the Garden of Eden sense, right? But it makes you look like, it, it, it makes you like the one you worship, like the one um, whom you're following. Um, because, because you're, uh, you are going to be sons of the Most High if you practice these things, okay? You're, because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil, and you can't help but think that there might be a bit of a tinge being, and you know who that is, that's all of us. So uh, uh, God is gracious, God is good, God is kind even to those who who, who hate him. And so if you want to be imitators of God, then you, one of the best ways to do that is to be kind to your enemies, um, kind to those who don't like you. Be merciful as your Father is merciful, and by the way, as he is merciful to you. Okay, that's it for today. As always, I thank you for joining me, and I very much look forward to being with you again tomorrow. Until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.